When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, it's Chris Deeran here. Thanks for joining me for this, the third of the New Statesman podcast, Scottish Election Specials. We've got a great show coming up. Why not take a moment to subscribe, rate and review the podcast? Here we go. In this episode, we'll be discussing whether the Scottish parties, with their big spending manifestos, can balance the books after May the 6th, or if they're all, frankly, at it. And the younger generation haven't had to fight as hard to give the notion of independence credibility. And that perhaps changes our view. Kate Forbes, SNP Cabinet Secretary for Finance and one of the young stars of the Scottish independence movement, joins me later in the podcast. First, what's been happening this week? Well, now all the major parties have launched their manifestos, it's time for the number crunching. The Institute for Fiscal Studies released their analysis of the promises each has made and found themselves, well, fairly incredulous. The figures set out for later years by the Conservatives and SNP would imply very little in the way of real terms funding increases for the Scottish NHS after 23-24. And it's simply implausible there'd be enough to keep pace with rising demands and costs. That's David Phillips, Associate Director of the IFS, speaking at a virtual event run by the University of Glasgow. Mr Phillips also wrote that the manifestos all share a disconnect from the fiscal reality the next Scottish government is likely to face. Nicola Sturgeon, in the fortunate, or perhaps unfortunate, position that she will actually have to implement her manifesto, has predictably rejected the IFS analysis. I'll be asking this week's guest, Sturgeon's Finance Secretary, Kate Forbes, for her response in a moment. This was also the week in which the Scottish party leaders, at absolutely no one's request, got their groove on. On the campaign trail in Livingston, near Edinburgh, Scottish Labour's Anna Sarwar joined an open-air dance class where he shook his thang to Bruno Mars's uptown funk. To general agreement, and perhaps even astonishment, Sarwar busted out some pretty sweet moves. Not to be left out, Scottish Tory leader Douglas Ross shimmied onto the floor too, outing himself as a fan of Atomic Kitten and as a connoisseur of their hit single Whole Again, no such thing as a guilty pleasure in the Ross household, clearly, he recited the song lyrics while performing a dance he'd come up with himself. Not so much John Travolta as John Travolting. If you see me walking down the street, staring at the sky, dragging my two feet, if you just pass me by, it still makes me cry. Also, on Tuesday night, the party leaders gathered for their third and final live televised debate. You, you don't want to focus on the for the record. I absolutely Brothers, want to. Don't, don't, don't start that. By now, the leaders must be sick of the sight of one another, with the voters not far behind. So what have we learned over the three debates? 
Well, Douglas Ross has been the disappointing elder son who hasn't fulfilled his early promise and who's now in danger of being outstripped by his siblings. Is that your hand up that you believe you will be First Minister? I would love to be First Minister of Scotland. (laughs) I'm not asking you that. And as Sarwar has been the cheeky, charming little brother with growing ambitions to take over the family firm and an emerging ruthlessness to match. I would just remind people on the stage... I don't need reminding of that, still on a pandemic. I'm sorry, but sometimes you do need reminding of it. The Lib Dems' Willie Rennie has been the jovial, if square, uncle who isn't quite as funny as he thinks he is and who's greeted by a gentle but universal groan when he walks in the room. Complaining about other governments when you've not taken responsibility yourself to solve the problem, I think is a neglect. Patrick Harvey of the Greens has been the mouthy little pal who likes to start fights and then wanders off, hands in pockets, whistling to himself. The longer they dig their heels in and say, Scotland's not allowed to choose, the more people will say, yes, we're going to. And Nicola Sturgeon has been the stoical, exhausted mum who repeatedly has to warn her warring tribe that the job really isn't as easy as they think it is. The Tories have already moved on to thinking how they block answer a referendum. The question, to how I'm, Douglas, I'm about to answer the question. Maybe, maybe if you listen, you'll learn something. Um, but what does it all amount to? To be honest, other than don't go into politics, kids, I haven't a clue. Kate Forbes will join me a little later in the podcast. But first, I'm joined by Ben Walker, the new Statesman's polling supremo, for an update on the polls. Welcome, Ben. Hello. Thanks for having me. Well, so far, it feels like this election has been defined by its almost complete lack of movement. I mean, were it not for the dance-off, one might even be tempted to describe it as a bit boring. But you have a new forecast which suggests some change, I understand. So how are things looking as we begin to close in on election day? Last time we spoke, which was two weeks ago, uh, the SNP was recuperating the ground they'd lost during the Sturgeon-Salmond saga. But over the last two weeks, we've seen them fall again, losing all gains they've made in the past few months. And at the moment, our poll tracker has them polling at their lowest level of support since 2019, which in the grand scheme of things isn't major news. The SNP are still ahead. The SNP are going to be the largest party. But it's worth knowing the direction of travel nonetheless, because in terms of seats, it doesn't look like the SNP will make many gains, if any, net gains in seats. And there's some signs in some places they're at risk of making net losses, they're losing seats. Now, the battle for second place has uh, intensified in the past two weeks. At the moment, our forecast does put the Conservatives on 26 seats ahead of Labour on 24 seats. But... If you tilted their numbers half a percentage point either way, if that, um, you'll have Labour overtaking the Tories or Labour making some net losses. Things have really come down to the margins uh, this election. It might be quite boring, but but in terms of whether the SNP gets a majority, in terms of who comes second, it really is tight. That's fascinating. And, and even if, as you say, the SNP are pretty much home in this election, it perhaps raises some questions about the election to, to follow. Um, zooming in a bit to specific constituency battles, it'd be interesting to know what's catching your eye in terms of the key local back- battlegrounds. Nationally, it might quite be a bit boring, but there are some really tight battles uh, 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 flaring up at the moment. So in Dumbarton, Jackie Bailey's constituency, she's in the fight for her life. Um, Our forecast suggests Jackie has a three in 10 chance of holding the seat. The SNP are odds on favourite to win at seven in 10 chance. But again, 
if you had a three in ten chance of winning the lottery, you wouldn't be writing up your chances. And Jackie Bailey's Labour's deputy leader, so that would be a, a hell of a scalp for uh, the would, Exactly. So um, we think maybe there is a, there's going to be a lot of tactical voting at play there in council by-elections in the area. Really, there was tactical voting for the Labour candidate before, so we could pretty much expect it. So you have Dumbarton, very tight. You have West Aberdeenshire which is also incredibly tight between the incumbent Conservative and the challenging SNP. In North Perthshire, or Perthshire North as, the, as it's actually called, uh, Murdo Fraser is uh, really uh, putting up a fight there. I think at the moment he has a 3 in 10 chance of taking the seat from the SNP, which would be a, uh, a net gain for the Conservatives there. And an interesting one which uh, uh, came out in the news recently is uh, Caithness, Sutherland and Ross, which is just one constituency, by the way. Uh, um, the Liberal Democrats say they have a poll there, or rather they have some internal polling which shows they are really quite close to taking a seat to Molly Nolan, who's the Lib Dem candidate there. She thinks she's in with a chance. Normally, when Lib Dems release these kind of private polling, might be over-egging their chances a little bit. But if they're releasing it, it shows they have some level of confidence. Well, I'm sure at least Murdo Fraser, as you pronounced it, will be uh, looking forward to the possibility of winning his constituency. There are certainly options for tactical voting in this election and plenty of fringe parties standing. Are we expecting much of an impact from this? In terms of tactical voting, I think, yeah. The way in which we are, uh, Scotland elects its local councillors is not first past the post as we do in England and still do in Wales, although not for long, um, they use single transferable vote or alternative vote. It's basically just preferencing, preferencing, right, which allows an opportunity for Labour or Conservative voters to second preference uh, 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 other parties, get used to basically the idea of tactical voting. In council by-elections, for the past few council by-elections we've been seeing in Scotland, you are seeing around about uh, between one in 10 and one in five conservative voters second preferencing Labour. You have similar numbers for conservative voters, uh, sorry, Labour voters second preferencing conservatives, so a little bit smaller. So there's a culture there that exists. And if you look at the number of support, number of voters willing to consider voting Labour or willing to consider voting Conservative, you do have about. Um, one in five and between one in five and uh, one in three voters from either party willing to consider voting for the other, right? So, so there is a potential there. How much of it will matter? Well, when you have tight races like in Dumbarton, Edinburgh Central, Western Redinshire, you, you do tend to think, yeah, it could get really, tactical voting could play a part. Mm, that's interesting. On Labour and the second vote, I got a leaflet through my door this week which um, from Labour, which which was very much asking people explicitly to give them their second votes. So they clearly see there's the potential for progress there. And one last question, I suppose. It's worth asking whether there's any sign that the current Tory sleaze allegations at Westminster, the, the redecoration of the Prime Ministerial flat, the fatal attraction comeback of Dominic Cummings, are these things having any impact on Scottish voter intention as far as we can tell? It would be very unprofessional of me to say NAFL, but uh, quite simply, <laughs> so far we have seen NAFL in, in polling movement as a consequence of the Tory sleaze allegation. There's, there's a risk. There's, it's it's too uh, it's too detailed. It's too detailed for voters to get a grip of, and rather, it hasn't been done to death in the media yet. It hasn't been done to death in the media enough for voters to start paying attention 
for it to reach the outer, outer echelons of, you know, like the, the public awareness before we start seeing any impact. There has been a dip in approval for Boris Johnson, a small one. The biggest dip in approval has been for Douglas Ross, who has, who has undoubtedly had probably to be fair, one of the worst campaigns of all all, all leaders, really. So, but no, the stuff going down on wet in, in Westminster really hasn't had an impact noticeably yet. Okay, thanks for that, Ben. If you haven't already, I'd recommend you check out Ben's work on the New Statesman Scottish election poll tracker available on newstatesman.com. It's constantly kept up to date with the latest polling data and gives vital perspective on voting intention by constituency. It also has the latest information on the crucial question of whether voters are leaning towards a yes vote on Scottish independence. The link's in the show's notes, so take a look. We're offering a special discount on new subscriptions to The New Statesman for listeners to these podcasts. You can get 12 weeks for just £12 by visiting newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. After the break. I'm speaking to you as the person who's had the headache for the last year to make the budget balance. I think the next few years are going to be extraordinarily difficult when it comes to revenue. Finance Secretary Kate Forbes with her response to that unhelpful IFS report. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Today's guest is one of the stars of Scottish politics, the standout performer among the younger generation of Scottish nationalists, and someone who increasingly finds herself tipped as a potential next First Minister. Kate Forbes became the SNP MSP for Sky, Lochaber and Badenoch in 2016, and has since rocketed through the ranks, becoming Minister for Public Finance in 2018 at the age of just 28, where she won such plaudits for her calm and efficient performance that just over a year later she joined Nicola Sturgeon's Cabinet as Finance Secretary. Indeed, she needed all of that calm and efficiency, given she was appointed on the morning the budget was due to be delivered, due to the sudden resignation of her suddenly scandal-hit predecessor, Derek Mackay. Now a hardened veteran, aged all of 31, Kate has managed the Scottish economy through the turbulent and unprecedented past year of the COVID pandemic, which has seen businesses shuttered, a significant amount of the workforce put on furlough, and vast emergency sums deployed by government in an attempt to mitigate the damage of lockdown. So a hell of a rise and a hell of a year. Kate is currently campaigning for re-election in May, having won in 2016 with a majority of 9,000. We can probably expect to see her safely return to Holyrood. So welcome to the New Statesman podcast, Kate Forbes. Thank you for having me. Now, it seems to me that pretty much everything about you is unusual in a Scottish political context, at least. As a child, you spent long spells living in India, uh, as well as attending a Scottish Gaelic school. You then went on to study history at Cambridge University. To, to say the least, it's not your traditional Scottish childhood. In its way, it sounds quite disrupted and perhaps even disorienting, uh, not necessarily in a bad way, but certainly in a way that required you to adapt regularly to new circumstances and cultures and people. What was that childhood like and what did you draw from it going into politics? 
Well, I had multiple identity crises by the age of 10. So that's probably, you know, prepared me well for a life in Scottish politics. But moving around a lot from a very early age, I didn't need to be taught two very key principles. One of which is that the world is a very diverse place with lots of different people with different backgrounds. And secondly, there's nobody that you can't build a bridge to. And that for me was just second nature, going to a local Indian school where there were 60 in a class and we all sat in on benches. And if you got an F in any of your exams, you'd feel the full force of the ruler on your wrist. It wasn't uh, belts back then, but uh, it was um, punishment like that. Very different from my lovely little polite Gaelic uh, primary school um, in Glasgow at the time. So, you know, I didn't need to be taught these things. I learned them. They were second nature. And I think in politics now, people are crying out for somebody that's different, for people that say things that are new and different. They don't want a bunch of clones. So hopefully uh, I do bring some of that with me into my political work. While living in India, your father was a charity worker in mission hospitals providing healthcare to poor Indians. I'm presuming you saw some fairly grim sights and and difficult cases, uh, which might perhaps put some Scotland's problems into perspective. Absolutely. And I'm looking at the moment at the news, seeing the huge spike in COVID cases in India. And my heart is there thinking of all the doctors and nurses, many of whom have sacrificed lucrative careers, perhaps in the West, in order to serve their fellow citizens in India. And it is tough work. And we're in a place like India where the welfare state, the welfare system isn't as well developed. It means that the slightest illness will plunge somebody into deepest poverty. So, you know, I, I've spoken about it in the past, but for me, the, the vision that stands out is going to school age 10 and passing tarpaulin shacks, you know, going to slums where the tarpaulin shacks last as you know far into the horizon and you've got families of six, seven children all living under one sheet. And perhaps the, the father and mother looking for work and, and, and the kids looking for work as young as the age of five. And that hits you between the eyes because you did not realise how grateful you should be for the security and stability you have. Now, I am not suggesting for a moment that here in Scotland there aren't families facing insecurity and instability coming from all different backgrounds. But here we don't know how grateful we should be for a state that provides you with affordable housing if you're homeless or that can provide free school meals if you're hungry. Children should never bear the the brunt of of parental poverty. And yet in India, you could see that. And from there to Cambridge University, from, uh, you know, one environment to a very different one. I worked at Oxford University for a a period as an adult, and I I found it quite the sensory overload, a sort of academic Disneyland full of incredible people, but still stuffed with privilege and wealth and entitlement. I don't think I've ever felt quite as Scottish as I did in Oxford. How how did you find that environment? And, And again, what did you take from it beyond an education into your political career? Yeah, I would share that characterisation. And in Freshers' Week, I remember the two questions people would ask is, what's your name and what school did you go to? And when, of course, I said Dingwall Academy, they all sort of took a moment, not wanting to show their ignorance of not having a clue where Dingwall Academy was. (laughs) But yeah, it was a totally different world. But what an international world. And for somebody who is an internationalist by nature, who loves that global diversity, 
Cambridge was wonderful because you had students from all over the world here and it was a very meritocratic system. That was certainly my experience of it. Perhaps it, you know, it's, it's based on what college you go to. I was at Selwyn, uh, loved it, uh, loved the uh, loved studying history as well, studied the history of nationalism and migration. And so I loved those three years. And again, it kept my horizons broad. And the minute you go too narrow, I think is the minute you should be out of public life. Mm. And, and given all that worldly early experience, what was it then that attracted you to Scottish nationalism? Was there a moment or a cause that was decisive? When did you determine to make a career as a, a politician and, and at Holyrood? I suppose there's two parts to that question. The first is when did I get interest in Scottish politics or, or, or in the SNP? And I was brought up just thinking it was so obvious that Scotland should play our full part on the the global platform of nations and it, I never you know I used to debate it with a lot of my friends and um, a lot of people would disagree with me so from a very early age politics with a small p was again second nature we used to debate these matters around the dinner table every day and I used to debate them with with friends um, and family and certainly when I went to Cambridge uh, they often used to joke that I would be the SNP candidate uh, standing for, for, for the Cambridge seat. But in terms of going formally into politics, I do think that if you've got strong views about the way things should be or complaints about why you don't like the way things um, as they are right now, you've got a duty to do something about it. You know, it's, it's easy to whinge and complain and sit on your backside and do nothing much harder to get stuck in and deal with all the challenges and the fact that nothing is really black and white. Everything is shades of grey in the the public sphere. And therefore, when the opportunity came to stand, you know, I was at the time working for a bank, I was training to be an accountant. I guess that could have been a safer, more guaranteed pathway and a really boring one. Or I could have thrown myself into the very risky world of Scottish politics, where every five years or four years you go out to pitch for your job again. Well, here's something for you. Does it burn in you that the, the desire for independence in the way that it, it does in the, the older generations? I find there's a sort of desperation, almost a sweaty passion among the old guard for independence that I don't always detect amongst younger SNP politicians. And I don't mean that as a criticism, but I see you as more considered perhaps even more technocratic than than what we had been used to from the SNP. Is that a fair characterisation? I think it's a fair characterisation that the younger generation haven't had to fight as hard to give the notion of independence credibility. So the, there's a younger generation that have grown up through the referendum, grew up uh, through the first two terms of the SNP being in power in, in, in Scotland who just don't think twice about the concept of independence. Now, of course, there's still debates about whether Scotland should be independent, but the older generation had to argue for the very notion of independence to be given credibility. Now the argument is, is it right or is it wrong? And therefore, I do think that we have had to fight. We haven't had to fight as hard, and that perhaps changes our view. I don't see independence as an end in and of itself. I will celebrate when Scotland becomes independent. But that's not where the work ends. That's where the work begins. And I think that Scotland's economy, Scotland's Scottish society has so much to gain from independence 
that for me, that's just the, the gateway to our collective future. Oh, an interesting answer. I mean, no one doubts that the SNP will be the largest party again after May the 6th, even if you don't feel you can necessarily say that at the moment. But but your manifesto matters, in a sense, more than the other parties' manifestos because you're going to have to implement it. This week, the IFS have published research that finds your manifesto, as well as Labour's and the Conservatives, has, quotes a disconnect from the fiscal reality the next Scottish government is likely to face. It says paying for the billions in additional pledges in these manifestos would therefore mean either increases in Scottish taxes or cuts to some other areas of spending. And they especially find the commitments on NHS NHS spending unconvincing. They also add it is also disappointing that with the exception of the Scottish Conservatives, there's no serious attempt by the parties to provide transparent and comprehensive costings for their plans. I mean, what what what's your response to that, it, it does perhaps feel that Scottish politics lacks a maturity that um, uh, that it might have when it's making these big promises and it's offering, you know, a stronger welfare state, more free stuff, all that kind of stuff. But when when the numbers are crunched, it doesn't really add up. Well, I'm speaking to you as the person who's had the headache for the last year to make the budget balance, and we have to balance our budget by law. And I know how acutely challenging it is not just to balance our budget, but to balance our budget in an extraordinary year where money was being given to us by the UK government on an ad hoc basis. It wasn't guaranteed. And the costs, of course, were very difficult to predict and forecast. So in a sense, if we can do it in one of the most extraordinary years, I think that shows that we've got a strong track record when it comes to balancing our budget. However, I would agree with one element in the IFS's uh, analysis, which is that I think the next few years are going to be extraordinarily difficult when it comes to uh, revenue. So for your listeners, approximately, let's say 50%, give or take, it's actually 40, 60, but about 50% of our funding still comes from the UK government via a block grant. Obviously, during COVID, it was our only means of getting additional funding, um, but uh, the bulk still comes from the UK government. And the other, say, 40% comes from uh, devolved taxation. Devolved taxation has faced the same challenges as taxation across uh, the UK in terms of income tax and such like. So we forecast, we work hard to try and predict what funding is coming down the line. We did that in January, the medium term financial strategy. And that says it's really difficult actually to forecast because you're dependent on another government determining what funding is going to be granted to you. And I have no doubt that we are going to see austerity 2.0 coming from the UK government. We've started seeing it already this year. We saw it with a squeeze on our capital. So I do think The IFS says it's going to be challenging. I think it will be challenging. It's one of the reasons that we have taken an approach that goes, um, that's affordable but ambitious. And it's another point where I think we need to move away from input targets when it comes to funding and move to outcomes instead of input. So it's very easy to say we're going to invest X million in a certain service or in the NHS or um, to relieve people of their council tax liabilities. Very difficult to say, actually, we're going to reduce poverty. And I don't think we should be pinning down the figures necessarily on our inputs. We should be focusing on the outcomes. And if it costs more or if it costs less, then so be it. But that is our focus on the outcomes, obviously doing all of that within a a fixed budget. But I suppose what the IFS is saying is that your 
um, promises to the Scottish people, your pledges of what you will do in the next five years, are actually not affordable, not without making cuts elsewhere or by raising taxes. And do you not think after the year that we've had, and as you say, the economic chaos, that it was kind of incumbent on the political parties, including your own, to be quite careful about the promises that they made and not offer something that actually they're not going to be able to deliver? I do think we need to be careful, and I wouldn't make a promise that we couldn't deliver. But equally, we have just come through an extraordinarily difficult year. Recovery has got to be our priority. Recovery is going to be expensive. We've got to focus on dealing with the backlog of NHS cases. We've got to get the economy back up and running. That is going to take money. That is going to take hard, cold cash to invest in infrastructure, to invest in uh, apprentices and to invest in the NHS. There's no two ways about it. And the IFS are also on record uh, as saying that now is not the time for fiscal consolidation. Now is not the time for austerity. Now is not the time for hiking taxes. Now is the time to focus on recovery. So that's what our manifesto tries to get the balance on, tries to get the balance on affordability, particularly with our hands tied about what money might be coming down the tracks in the UK government, but also recognising that this is the year to invest well so that we recover faster. Another question then would be, um, is now the time for an independence referendum? We, we know you're likely to win the election. Um, perhaps the most important unknown is whether that comes with an overall majority uh, that provides the mandate for a second independence ref- referendum. You're speaking to voters in the course of this campaign. What's the appetite for a rerun of 2014? Are people worried about reopening divisions at a sensitive time within the next, say, two, two and a half years, which seems to be SNP policy. Is, is there really an appetite to, to go back to the barricades so quickly? Well, we will be able to measure that appetite, obviously, on the 6th of May, when voters will go to the ballot box. I think right now, from my perspective, we absolutely need independence to have that sustainable recovery. Some will say, how can you you know how can you how can you focus on an independence referendum at a time of econ- when we need economic recovery i would say that the two are not mutually exclusive i have seen over the last year how challenging it is to spend or to plan without knowing where your funding is going to come from i mean it's extraordinary that we are one of the very few governments around the world that dealt with a health pandemic and an economic crisis without borrowing powers without borrowing powers i mean it's mind blowing The way that we fund our commitments is to wait for the UK government to decide to fund commitments. Then they put it through a big formula and then they tell us what we're going to get, sometimes several weeks or several months after we needed to make the decision. That is no way for a government to to run its own affairs. And I think, secondly, the current government in the, the UK government, the current party, the current chancellor are all on record as saying that they think austerity was absolutely the right approach from 2010 onwards. So, you know, we don't need to imagine what life is going to be like under the Conservatives in London over the coming years. We just need to look back to 2010, where they balanced the books on the backs of the most vulnerable and undermined economic recovery by cutting. We're already seeing that in our capital budget, a cut of 5%. So my view on this is that if we want a sustainable, robust recovery that's made in Scotland, that serves my constituents, whether it's the fishermen that fish off um, Sky or whether it's the small businesses in Dingwall, we absolutely need certainly more fiscal powers and absolutely need the full uh, toolbox of uh, controls in order to ensure that our recovery is sustainable.
uh, that picture you paint sounds entirely reasonable. Um, I've heard it many times from 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 your colleagues that you know the, the the recovery and independence could go hand in hand because we'd have the toolbox to deliver what we need. But we know that moving to independence isn't going to be you know the, this, the next day will be roughly as it was the day before. There are consequences to becoming independent, whether you're in favour of it or not. There will be economic challenges. There will be disruption, uh, long stand, uh, negotiations, uh, and an element of chaos to it. Um, I think that's unavoidable. And I think whether you're pro-independence or anti-independence, you should be able to admit the likelihood of that kind of disruption and the impact on the economy. Maybe only in the short term, but it would still be there. So when we're in the middle of, you know, all, all the problems of economic problems we've had over the past year, you know, it's only this week that Scotland's shops and pubs and gyms, etc., are opening their doors again, uh, thinking about the recovery. And with the best will in the world, moving to independence within the next couple of years is only going to make things more com- uh, more complicated and difficult in the short term. Do you not agree with that? Well, I agree with part of that. So I'll come back to what I do agree with. But the status quo has long gone. Every single politician right now is talking about building back better, about tackling inequalities, about delivering change. I don't think you'd find a politician right now who doesn't want to see change. So change is inevitable. The question is, what kind of change do you want? Do you want the change that brings power closer to the people who have to face the consequences of that change? Or do you leave those levers of change in the hands of distant UK governments? Now, that for me is a central question. Change is coming. What is the status quo? There is no status quo. In terms of the other part of your question that I do agree with, is that nothing is inevitable. So I see that there have been two key milestones in the coming period. The first is the, the 6th of May, which will eat, will hopefully give a, a democratic mandate to another uh, elect, another referendum. Now, if the UK government continues to say, we don't like the result, so we're not giving you a referendum, then I think things will become more challenging. They will either respect that democratic outcome or they'll stand in the way of it. And that will determine how straightforward uh, the, the coming period is. The second is, of course, the independence referendum itself. If the people of Scotland want to have a say over their future, they should have an independence referendum. And again, you know, it will be every party's duty to set forward a prospectus, including those that support the union, for what that change looks like. Now, there are, nothing is inevitable. Living in a land flowing with milk and honey is not inevitable. Every country around the world that ha- has choices can either choose to invest in prosperity, invest injustice, invest in fairness, or choose not to. So, you know, every party will have a duty, including mine, to set out how they would use those levers to invest in economic growth and uh, increasing fairness. But that is not inevitable, and nobody should argue that it will be inevitable. Kate Forbes, thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for this episode. I'll be back next Wednesday for the last of these Scottish election specials before the big vote on May the 6th. Stephen, Anoush and Alva are here on Friday and again on Tuesday. Until next time. You've been listening to a special episode of the New Statesman podcast. I'm Chris Deeran. You can read more of the New Statesman Scottish election coverage at newstatesman.com and follow me on Twitter at, at Chris Deeran. 
This podcast was produced by Chris Stone and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.